Welcome to Inspired Surfers on Wavelength Community Radio in partnership with Jimmy's Iced Coffee. In this episode, Jim is in conversation with Tom Hewitt, MBE, founder and CEO of Surfers, Not Street Children, a field he has worked in for over 28 years and received an MBE for in 2011 through his work with street children in Africa. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and joining us for this podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you and actually see you face-to-face, albeit digitally. Um, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? Good. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate, no, it's, it's, it's our pleasure completely. Um, so typically just kind of setting a scene. Um, um, wh- where are you right now? What's going on? What's outside your window? What's happening? I'm in Braunton in Devon, so not in Durban right now. And uh, it's windy onshore today down, down at Croyd. So, uh, yeah, a bit of an admin day. Yeah, that's quite frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Although it looks like we've got um, we've got like 40 mile an hour northerlies coming in tomorrow. So I don't know whether, well, maybe maybe tucked in at the at the cliff at Saunton might work if there's any any swell coming in. Or yeah, yeah, true. I think we'll be on the road elsewhere tomorrow, but uh, I've got to say we have had such good waves um, in Croyd recently, so uh, definitely no complaints on the surf front. What a what a spot! Yeah, and is that is that your absolute go to, or do you mix between that and Pottsboro and Ilfracombe when it's working, or what's your? What's your- um, I tend to surf Croyd mostly, um, and then I think Pottsboro is really good to have because if you didn't have Pottsboro, you wouldn't have anywhere in a southwesterly. Or a south southwesterly, so uh, yeah. yeah, definitely surf Pattsburgh as well. People love to hate it, but you know, if you time it right, it can be okay. Um, and uh, and then of course other spots around the top. Um, but yeah, it's good. Yeah, good, good. I mean, for me, it's I you know I'm British, but I've lived my whole life in South Africa. So yeah. connecting or reconnecting to the UK over the last couple of years has been epic. I mean, I've had such good waves. Um, there's this kind of belief that England doesn't have any waves around the world. And um, I've had just such good waves here. And so uh, it's been absolutely fantastic reconnecting. I do find that fascinating that people think that the UK doesn't have any surf when obviously, like, I don't know how global something like Magic Seaweed is as a platform, but it, it's, a, it's a pretty good spokes spokes website for the UK and UK surf. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to be able to show people that it, that, that it can get good. Yeah, there's so many waves here, and it's. Uh, I think people in the UK um, poten- perhaps feel that elsewhere is just so much more consistent. And and yeah, sure, d- definitely UK has consistency issues, but um, at the same time, so do a lot of places. I mean, you know, a lot of places I go to, like Japan and places like that. I mean, even California. I mean, they're not. It's not pumping the whole time. Um, I think you know. Okay, you can't take away the cold here. It is cold and often gray but if you look at purely at the waves i mean there's some great spots here and they pump as well they're not just like it's not dribbly you know what people's perception of it is but then maybe that's the great thing because you don't get international surf tourism and you know you can you know it's still a fun place to surf so i don't know maybe maybe keep on telling people there's no waves in england yeah and try and keep it as quiet as possible yeah, exactly yeah like last well last week um I, unfortunately i missed it um because we did a big cycling event but um yeah the south coast a lot of the reefs around here got very well documented um yeah, story. and uh yeah it just looked 
I mean, it looked like, I, I mean, I've seen it working like that before, but not quite as perfect because the wind was just, there was no, it was like really, really glassy. Yeah. Uh, huge. Just looked incredible. Well, that spot, I won't name it, but that spot, the, the, the reef that was got a lot of coverage uh, up the channel, not the one uh, further down, mm. that, that spot is one that I've wanted to surf since I surfed it in the 80s. Oh. And, and one and a, a couple of years ago, I was in South Africa and I knew I was coming to the UK and it was middle of winter. I think it was February, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I got a I was watching it like a few days before coming, watching the you know magic seaweed and the, and the charts. And, and I thought, oh, man, it's actually going to be on. And I hadn't surfed it in you know literally 30 years. Wow. And I, I got off the flight out of like, in fact, I, I'd just been in Mozambique where our other project is. And it was like obviously from the tropics. 29 degree water i'd left all my stuff uh somewhere where i could get it in the uk came out of heathrow grabbed my car drove to that spot mm. through snow like properly snow almost couldn't get through and that was, there's a super long walk round to the point and oh my goodness it was six foot and pumping just yeah. so good it's everything i dreamed about i haven't actually surfed it since but so it's like i get to surf it once every 30 years but it was yeah. uh, it was it's so good that I was utterly blown away. Well, that's Boscombe Reef for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Letting the cat out of the bag. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, just swinging this, um, swinging this back round. Your, what can you just can you tell us about um, your the reasons for going to South Africa and Durban in the first place? So this was something to do with your. Uh, you went over there with your dad on an anti-apartheid mission. What could you can you go into a little bit of detail about that? Yeah, my dad was uh, and still is uh, a social justice activist. So um, issues related to um, to social justice around the world were talked about in our family as a kid. So I was familiar with names like Nelson Mandela and others. And um, he'd been involved in the anti-apartheid movement and was on a fact-finding trip um, uh, in in South Africa. And basically um, took me with. Uh, actually, I had to save up for the trip, and you know, uh, and it it was kind of mind blowing for me because although I knew a little bit about the South African apartheid situation, um, we also uh, I was really inspired by activists that I met along the way because um, we were with ANC leaders and activists at the time, and um, we went up into uh, Mozambique during the civil war. Um, where we did some work with peace activists there as well. And I had like, you know, obviously I surfed at the time. So I, I surfed a little bit in, in South Africa during that time. Um, and then um, up in Mozambique, we couldn't because it was the civil war. You couldn't get out of the city, but it was pretty hair raising there. And interestingly, on that trip, I met a group of, I got introduced to street children in Maputo. And mm -hmm. it blew my mind because I actually didn't really know street kids existed. and didn't even know it was a thing. You know, I guess it had, it had just hadn't crossed my radar and um i was pretty blown away i couldn't actually quite comprehend that children would be living on the streets and i was 18 at the time and i'd you know been fortunate enough to have a pretty good upbringing and uh and and it was kind of without me realizing at the time it was kind of a sort of uh life-changing moment and when i went back into south africa I was asking a lot of the activists, you know, hey, what's happening with the street kids? Because I noticed there were kids on the streets in South Africa too. And they were like, oh, uh, you know, of course, the macro is that the, you know, the, the whole country is changing from apartheid to the new South Africa. So it wasn't that people didn't care about street kids. It was just they were like, well, I don't know. What, what, what is happening with them? Mm -hmm. 
So if you can imagine an 18-year-old, um, I had really little to offer. I mean, and, and I stayed out in South Africa because I was so inspired by the movement and uh, I wanted to be involved in some small capacity with the um, with the transition into the new South Africa, but but just didn't have skills, didn't have anything to offer, was kind of just right, like, you know, naive. And and I said to, to friends who were, uh, you know, doing great stuff out there, so what about if I get involved with the street kids? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, no problem. And and I did. I, I went and got involved with the Street Kids organization there in in 1991. And um, weirdly, although I'd never have imagined it, uh, you know, I've, my the last however many years um, has been uh, working with street children, and uh, it's become a sort of uh, vocation. And in about 98, fused with my other sort of passion, which is surfing. So uh, yeah, it's been quite a run. Did you? How long did you plan on going out for when you were 18? Were you thinking this might just be a few month trip or were you kind of packing up everything to go? And and what did you go with? I mean, you'd obviously done, had you done like GCSEs and A-levels and you were kind of like really fresh faced and you were slapped in the face with this street children kind of issue and, how, you know, how how did that pan out? Yeah, well, definitely that. I mean, I was, um, yeah, I just finished my A-levels and um, didn't do particularly well. Um, was kind of, you know, parents were thinking university grades were thinking less so. So uh, I just, you know, took a, when I went out that time with my father, I actually came back. We were there for like six weeks and then I came back and mm-hmm. then I wanted to go back out. So I, I went back out when I was 19 and that's where I sort of stayed, um, well, permanently. In this, but I didn't know I was going to stay permanently. I just wanted to be involved for what I thought would be a year or two. And, and was, there, um, was there a defining moment in that trip that, made you go back again when you were 19 rather than going well I'm I'm back in North Devon I'm back in like first world country nice and comfortable but what what was the draw what was the thing that made you go I'm actually I'm I'm ditching this I'm going back again yeah it's weird to say this but um because obviously you know apartheid is a hideous thing and so experiencing apartheid uh, or, or experiencing people experiencing apartheid is is awful but the camaraderie among the uh activists at the time was actually pretty special and the people I met were were absolutely incredible so that was definitely what drew me back and South Africa is a beautiful country and there's so many pluses about South Africa as well I think when when I was out the second time the thing that uh drew me the the the, the probably the biggest moment that made me stay was that I started working with a an organization that was sort of facing closure and um and the kids I met in that program were epic. You know, I mean, they were mm. so cool. And I'm in, still in touch with a lot of them as adults now. And the, probably the kids in that program were, uh, you know, was just something that became like a family. And what was the name of that program? The name was uh, Isaiah. Okay. And that was, yeah. that was a, it's similar to your initiative at the moment, but not necessarily including surfing? Yeah, no, definitely not including surfing. And, and it was, when I say similar, I don't. It wasn't similar because obviously uh, that was a slightly anarchic time, and and we've obviously uh, have our program is professional in in as much as you know we've gone from that era to one where there's social workers and carers and all these different professionals involved. But um, yeah, sim- definitely similar in in spirit. You know, it was about getting kids off the streets, and in that case, off the out of the rubbish dump environment. Kids were living on the the dumps, like which was right next door to the program. So it was pretty amazing. I was inspired by uh, an African mama who was uh, 
working in the program, an older woman, and she was just so incredible with the kids. It was really inspiring to see. And, uh, and so kind of um, inadvertently kind of pushed me down the path of, I just got involved without thinking about the future, to be honest. And, and it just, you know, there never seemed to be a time where I didn't want to do this and be involved. That's that was going to be my next question of do you remember kind of like your first day of actually working of, of actually doing it as a this is my this is my now my job because a lot of people go I'm going to go to a charity evening and I'm going to spend a little bit of money and then I'm going to go back to my normal life and obviously yeah. you didn't have that kind of I'll do I'll dip my toe and then I'll go back to yeah. normality you were like I'm, I'm in it and that's it I'm in it to win it now yeah I, d- I don't think at that stage I don't think I ever got proper like a salary I think I got stipends and it'll you know we we got the support of an organization in the UK at the time um to to uh assist with some funding for the organizations I'd have just got little stipends uh definitely wasn't a sort of like there's a salary type thing yeah um I I would say I'm sorry did you have to work another job in order to just actually feed yourself um yeah, I did at one stage actually filling up bottles in a in a tiny little factory in East London that uh, was owned by some surfers. Yeah, um, I did do that. Um, we had some pretty funny moments actually. Um, I think it's important for people to know that kind of thing because you can't. It, it's all fair and well being knowing oh you're doing such a great job with running a charity, but you've also got to pay rent. You've also got to do your do your thing to survive. True. Interesting to know right what else do you have to do in order to fulfil the burning desire which is to help street kids you've actually got to go to a bottling factory in in yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah it was so uh, it was it was crazy i mean it was this little factory and i literally would just go like that with a with a handle and, and it would squirt uh, glycerin into a little bottle that was a hair product that would you know <laughs> it was like and it's the three surfers in there so it was just like it was actually pretty fun because you know the banter but it was uh yeah i mean that that paid the way for a while you know yeah and with regards to the, the program that you've set up, you initially it was helping street kids through drama and music and football. Is that correct? Yeah, we had an array of programs uh, sort of back in 1998. I founded the program in 98 and we called it the Durban Street Team. Okay. And at the beginning, it was just a we, we rallied a group of people together who were concerned citizens, really. Um, and we had a vehicle um, that I'd managed to to get somehow and we just drive around trying to identify street kids uh, build relationships of trust with them and, and assist and bear in mind at the time there was very little in terms of professional structures um, if you think about the welfare system in South Africa it was built for a minority and then when the walls came down of apartheid and everybody was uh, the majority was allowed in it obviously just burst at the seams mm-hmm. so um, so there wasn't really a welfare system for black people in South Africa. So what we were trying to do, and where I think where we were successful is we were able to set up programs of integrity in an anarchic situation. And what we've had to learn how to do over time is to professionalize that as the structures uh, and infrastructure has professionalized in South Africa, government levels, and, um, and there's more support. So um, originally, we were just a crew of concerned people driving around and doing what we could. Um, and over time, that very organization Durban Street Team became Surfers Not Street Children. What's quite interesting is if if we went round in a van in the UK to a poverty stricken part of the UK and picked up a bunch of kids and took them somewhere, you'd probably be banged up in jail. Whereas, I yeah, guess- we, we we often talk talk about that. That's a really interesting thing because you know I think when you're in when you're in moments of 
of anarchy. And I don't mean that in sort of a sense of it being negative sort of chaos. I mean, in terms of where there's no infrastructure for a period of time, which coming out of the old and into the new was, um, you know, there you do things, you have to do things in a way that would certainly not be acceptable in, in, a, in a place where there's infrastructure and not be appropriate. Um, mm. you know, yeah, obviously, there are very good reasons why there are great structures in place in, in places. And in South Africa now, you couldn't just do that. You, you know, yeah. it was very much of its time. Yeah. Um, you obviously had, there's no red tape to jump through. There's no, I need to set up an account. I need to do this. I need to register as a business. I'm actually just going to drive because that kid needs my help right now. And I'm going to go and do right. it. Right. And, and to be honest, we were, we were good at uh, being able to work in that anarchic situation and, and develop something of integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, the learning came a bit later when we had to professionalize and, and start fitting and, and embracing and, and, um, and utilizing things that were being put into place in the country. Um, and obviously now it's a, it's a very professional setup, but, um, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, everyone's learning in a process like that, but because what you're doing is a society is developing and, um, and it's, and the new South Africa, a free and fair South Africa was so embryonic that we had to sort of, you know, you, you have to keep halfway working in that sort of anarchy situation, but bringing in, professional stuff the whole time it was, it was a complicated um journey but obviously you know we're stoked at where things are now in terms of the operations yeah it's almost like you had a bit of a blank canvas to play with and now you've got the structure to help you continue doing what you're doing in a professional manner yeah exactly that, that's a good way of describing it yeah yeah and then so your personal passion is obviously from surfing from growing up in north devon i mean i don't know how passionate you are about drama and music and football but the difference, what I'm trying to understand here is the difference in um, maybe, not, maybe ne- not necessarily stoke level, but maybe just the feeling that you get when you see uh, a street kid who's played football for two hours versus a street kid who's gone surfing for two hours. So, mm-hmm. and I understand there was, there was one day you were in, um, you were somewhere on the beach and one of the street kids said to you, Oi, I need to have a go at that surfing thing. Is it is is that correct? And if it is, could you could you expand on that for me? Sure. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. Um, I was surfing at the on the wedge side of the New Pier, which is the New Pier is the main the premier surfing spot in Durban, and there's a little bowl on the on the wedge side. And I was surfing there. It's only small, it's two to three foot, um, probably more in the two foot region, but super clean, like just a nice nice little bowl, and hitting a sandbank so that um, so it was you know it can get really good in those bowls and. Uh, one of the kids came walking along the pier. His name is Tula. And he said, hey, Tom, I want to surf. I knew he could swim because he'd been in the program. So uh, so I said to him, okay, jump off the pier. Um, in Durban, uh, for those who haven't been to Durban, you can like, when you're surfing in the bowls, you can just talk to people on the pier because the piers are quite low. Okay. And uh, and also it saves the paddle out as well. You just, I mean, to be honest, the piers have rips anyway, so it's an easy paddle out. But, um, but you just jump off the end of the pier, although you're not technically supposed to. But anyway... Point being that uh, it was safe for him to jump off the pier. I strapped the the leash to his ankle and and pushed him into a wave. And of course, he didn't stand up, but he did belly surf it all the way. And I'm behind the wave, so I can't see him, but I can hear yeah. him hooting. <laughs> and all the way, like properly, like hooting all the way to the beach. And then he got up, grabbed the board, ran up the beach, um, ran up the pier again, jumped off again, wanted to do it again and again. It was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because... 
you know, my I had a my sense was that I surfed, but I didn't really feel that I wanted to impose what I loved on the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, uh, kids in the area were really into soccer and you know other sports. So I thought, you know, it's a bit weird, isn't it, if I just come in and then everyone wants to surf. But at that moment, I was like, oh man, that's kind of challenges me because. You know, I've, I've got so much stoke out of surfing my whole life. Um, what about, you know, I don't want to deny it to the kids. So I was in this, you know, kind of like, what, what do I do? And they just wanted to surf after that. So um, so we introduced it as one of the programs. And so alongside art, drama, music, soccer, all sorts of things. But surfing just blew up. And, um, and soon this crew of uh, surfers, was changing the racial demographics of surfing in Durban because surfing in Durban was exclusively white. Yeah. There was a handful of black surfers in the 90s. Um, they had to kind of like act white. And um, then you get these street kids come in who honestly were, you know, they were tough and hardened. And, you know, the, the locals were, were, some locals were super supportive, but others were like, this is you know, not for these kids, and we had a lot of problems. Um, but the kids were so. You get any grief from that? Like, or you've, you've huge amounts, huge amounts of grief. Yeah. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Considering what you're doing is 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 100 great. Yeah. Obviously, some people don't see it like that. Do you, do you just give them a slap around the face, or what do you do? <laughs> no, because half of them had done military service, so I was, I was <laughs> run run pretty fast. You know what? There was. It definitely wasn't everyone, but there was some people who just did not like having these black kids in the water. And mm. part of it, I think, was a fear that if they got better, they wouldn't necessarily respect the the, the elders of surf. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, black kids couldn't have parents that surf because parents were ba- uh, black people were banned from the beaches during apartheid, so they couldn't have a history of surfing. It's not just that black people didn't like the water. They were banned from the, the, the surfing beaches and the safe beaches, so they couldn't develop a history of surfing. So I think there was some fear that these kids would become the new locals. And, you know, once it the, the, it sort of became more black surfers, you know, then the white surfers had a, maybe a fear. But then there were other guys who were, who were super cool. I mean, I always remember uh, the one time I was being – I was having abuse hurled at me because actually they were, they were a bit scared of the kids weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would hurl abuse at me and, and one guy was even swinging punches at me and another surfer, uh, a well-known surfer, a friend of Kelly Slater's actually, uh, Shane Thorne, who was the powerhouse enforcer of the new pier. He just paddled up to me and said, Hey, listen, you carry on doing what you're doing. He says, this is great. Yeah, I've got your back. And you know, if anyone knows Shane Thorne, I mean, he's, uh, He's a good guy to have saying saying positive words about you in the lineup. So, uh, so that was pretty cool, and that was in the that must have been the late nineties, early two thousands. How do you weigh up um, the stoke and the the value a game of football has in terms of the cost of football, in terms of uh, the cost of one football for twenty kids versus twenty wetsuits, twenty surfboards, but you know that it's actually the return is actually better. Do you know what I mean? Like one, one's obviously going to cost a lot more because you're going to yeah. need all, all of these things. How, how does that work? Yeah, I don't know if the return's better. I think that a lot of kids in Africa find uh, uh, love football, you know, um, and and they do get a lot of stoke out of football, and and there are fantastic programs around football in South Africa. So and in Africa 
in general. So I think that for kids who love football, it, it is, you know, it can be hugely empowering. And I think uh, surfing definitely has some sort of therapeutic value that um, that is is quite special. I mean, I say that obviously as a surfer and not a football player. Mm. Um, but uh, and I try and analyze that often as to what what is it exactly that makes it so addictive. And and I, and I think and this is just opinion um, that I think we riding a wave. That moment of riding a wave is you are forced to be in the present. Mm. And as soon as you kick out, you can come out of that. Um, but that actual wave riding, um, you're, you're totally present. I think that's addictive. Mm. That's, and I think that for me, that's why when you kick out, you just want another one, you know, cause you're not, you're not thinking I, I, this paddling is just as exciting as the, the wave riding. Something happens when you in that wave riding, when you're totally, uh, living in the present. And I think that, um, that, and the fact that there's, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, self-mastery in in surfing so it's not a it can be a team fun but it's not a team sport i mean it's mm. it is self-mastery and i think that that's really good for for dignity so obviously being a great football player is great for dignity as well but with surfing you kind of have to you can be coached of course but you have to do it yourself and mm. um, there's a lot of actually for that reason there's a lot of crossover life lessons you know surfing metaphors um that we use in the program and uh I, but I th but I always say to people that with our programs, surfing isn't the model. Surfing fits the model, but it fits it really well. Yeah. So our model is surfing alongside mentorship and care, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's psychosocial care or whatever. Um, surfing, mentorship, and care. If you just do the surfing, um, yeah, you, you'll stoke kids out, but they're not. It's not the it's not the full picture. You can't just give a kid a surfboard and their life will sort out. It, the mentorship is really surfing's the hook. Yeah. And together with the right um, mentorship and care, it can be, you can see dramatic change. But the mistake is to think that just surfing will change people's lives. You get stoked and, and everything, and there is positive, but there's a bigger picture. And the mentorship and care, is that in the form of just quality time with these kids in all, whether it's cooking, whether it's just purely hanging out, whether it's like group discussions around pain points and life and how to develop and stuff. Is that what it looks like? Or is there, is there a lot? Yeah, more? all of that, actually, that that's, um, that's a good, uh, you know, that's a good description. And, um, you know, we have an array of programs and life skill programs. And, you know, um, ultimately, what we're aiming for is for, for the children in the program to learn how to be independent and self supportive adults. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, and, and to be able to get out of the scenarios that they're in. So, you know, we work with kids that are living on the streets. We look, we work with kids that are living at risk of street connectedness, which basically means, you know, living in an environment where the streets, street life is all around them, even if they're not on the streets. Mm. Um, and that's, so our, the, the, what we're offering can range from rescue um, right through to diversion and all that's in between. So mm -hmm. for some kids, they may not have had the experiences, but they could very well get caught up in gang life and, you know the drug culture and and prostitution and whatever it is that's going on around the streets mm. um but um but being part of the program will divert them from that and give them mentorship for street kids who are who are in it it's it's really deep and it's about you know there's a rescue element to it and it's you know really sort of immediately um transformative so the kids we work with um you know they they're definitely all living in 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 difficult circumstances
do you have is it what's the ratio of people coming of kids coming to you versus you going and picking up kids well, word of mouth among the kids actually is probably the best way of getting kids into the program. Yeah. Um, and that's also good for us to know because the kids are stoked and so they're passing on the message and then other kids come. So that's always, I think, uh, I always tell you know my colleagues that that's a, if, if kids are referring kids, that's a great thing. Um, but we also have what's called outreach teams that go out into the streets and uh, identify children at risk, develop the relationships of trust, just as we used to do in 1998 mm. with the Durban Street team. Just this time, they're led by social workers and carers, and they're, they're just a bit more, um, you know, they're able to uh, assist in, you know, better in a way because there's more infrastructure and training and all of those things. What about like, just the just the daily risk? Because if I if I was imagining doing that myself, and please excuse my ignorance here, but I'm imagining myself going into a very deprived area, going to kind of maybe see if there are a couple of kids that could do some help. There could be some people there who are like you are not talking to that kid because that kid's a drug runner for me. And if you try and pinch him, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Like, yeah. is, is, is that kind of thing real? Is that, am I going down the wrong path? What's what? How no, it's that definitely work? real. That, that's that's a, a, a very big issue. But where we have uh, an advantage, and this is really fortunate, is that most of, we, we there's one gang in, in the area. It's called the 26 gang, which is a um, prison gang. Um, and the 26 is, um, are, the, the, some of the, the the higher up 26s, when they were kids, we were working with them. So we don't have a 100% success rate, but we may have provided some care and they they really still uh, respect that. And and so we've actually spoken to the, the sort of um, the high up, you know, gangsters in the area and they've given us access to these shelters that are, that they're in charge of. Um, and they've said, yeah, please do work with the kids. And actually, it's kind of nice because they're saying we don't want these kids to have to grow up like we have. And um, so we've got we've got quite unique access um, in terms of being able to access the kids in these situations. So and that only comes from the fact that we've been doing this um, since 1998. See, so, you now that that for me is is such a big thing because they, they've still got essentially a business to run and they can't. And it's they're going to have to pass it down to someone else and someone else and someone else. So there's going to be a few people that they need to keep in the game and who they don't necessarily want to surrender. But that unique relationship you have must be, it's got to be on a knife edge the whole time because something could, could something just flick a switch where they go? Yeah. Luck a little bit here. Yeah. Occasionally. And it's more to do with um, them not being able to see that our, work is with children and so you might get someone who's 30 and, and desperate or is coming down off drugs or something and they they want you to give them something it could be money it could be i mean obviously we're not we don't give out money but that in their mind they could they could be in a space where they just they're desperate and they want from you and uh and and trying to explain that we can't do that and you know or maybe they want something that the kids get and they say why can't i have it that person's getting it and we're like well that's a 14 year old child you're 30 you know yeah. that type of stuff can get really uh tricky but um you know the team's pretty skilled with with navigating these uh uh and um, i mean I, I have and the team has worked in the most uh dangerous areas and i've only ever had one incident where things got a bit sketchy and it's quite a good story um because um it was a guy who who was just bombed i mean he he'd been on some really heavy drugs so he wasn't thinking straight he would never have done this under normal circumstances but i think he was coming down off something and was was desperate and and uh, wanted me to i wanted something from me i can't even remember what it was now but and he 
and we couldn't and he um he produced a panga um and um what's a panga a machete sorry and right. um and so uh so what was really interesting about the story is I want to say it was frightening um but um and he was he was you know basically looking like he wanted to hit me with the panga and then um the kids themselves formed a wall um around and 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 between me and him and they I was able to to get away from the area on foot and the kids stopped him you know they put themselves in 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 actually potentially harm's way um which is pretty it's only happened to me once and it was a long time ago it's probably about 15 years ago uh, but that was that was a scary incident but i was obviously it was also a moving incident because these are um these are kids that you know the teams desperately trying to help and then they get an opportunity to help one of us in this case it was me and um they did it without even thinking of their personal safety straight in straight in i mean and and one guy who's actually dead now and sadly he got stabbed to death in another instant not in that one um but uh he he just took control and you know and he didn't have any physical prowess over this guy but he just wasn't going to let me get stabbed um so i'm always you know and when i think about him um he you know obviously he's passed on now but i do have a lot of i'm very grateful to what he did and to how the, the kids all rallied around on that day how do you deal with things like that? I mean, that was just almost not, you know, with all due respect, that was just a passing statement of like, oh, he got stabbed to death and um, we've now kind of moved on from that. You know, any, anyone in a normal circumstance over here, if their friend got stabbed to death, they, they might just be, you know, rocking in a corner for the rest of their lives. And obviously you've been exposed to a serious amount of, you know, your eyes have been open to lots and lots and lots of pain and death. How do you deal, how do you look after yourself? Yeah, I suppose maybe similarly to how a doctor would. Um, so, I mean, you know, you have to, you can't emotionally invest in every every time. I mean, sometimes you, you can't help it. I mean, obviously, everyone's human. Uh, but, you know, we have lost a lot of kids over the years, especially during the, the HIV AIDS pandemic, because I worked through that, doing this work on the streets throughout the entire um, AIDS pandemic. Um which was was horrific. We lost a lot of kids during that time, so we became used to that, which is which is hard. And then through violence and and you know um, as well, yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is that actually every time a kid's successful in the program, and by success I mean you know small steps success. It's such a joy to see that 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 is overwhelming. And so that to me just rides so much higher than having to deal with, it just makes it all worthwhile. I mean, certainly not, I don't mean makes the, the suffering worthwhile, but just makes doing this type of work worthwhile. And so you can dwell on that. Um, with the with the the death and, and that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I, I, I do think about it. Um, and, you know, I've lost a lot of staff actually as well. I mean, uh, one of my, one of my staff, uh, a guy called Tulani, um, intervened. Um, he came from the streets as well, and he intervened with a fight. Uh, he, he saw a street kid being picked on uh, one evening, not during work, but and he just got involved immediately and got stabbed to death. And uh, and that was really sad to to lose him. And another one of our guys, Tennyson, um, he got stabbed to death in a bar, just unrelated, you know, to to any work stuff. But you know, it's a, it is a dangerous area where um where life is cheap and i don't mean that as a slight on the community at all 
because what I look at is if you're told day in, day out, you're the rubbish of society, which is what happens to street children through words and action, actually. So people step over them, they, the way they look at them, the way they look down upon them, the way they look at them when they ask for money, the way they look at them in terms of, uh, you, you just get the sense that people view them as the architects of their own misery. Mm-hmm. And if you if you internalize that being second class, then, you know, after a while, you you, you start to believe that you're second class. And if you believe that you're second class, then life becomes your life becomes cheap. And if your life becomes cheap, then so is the person next to you, and life becomes cheap in general. Mm-hmm. And that seems, and that can sometimes happen where, you know, um, you know, it's it's life is so cheap for everyone because of this spiral downwards that things happen. Wow. Now the government do these when they have these like big conferences and stuff and there's this there's this kind of is it like an operation cleanup thing where they just want to just get kids out of the way to make themselves look much better and cleaner what's what what's the what's happening with that and what are you guys doing to yeah well that that's a good story because that's that's not happening now and and the great story is that it was and we fought against it and it's now not so basically what was happening is that every time there was a city festival or a um, a sports event or a conference, um, the city authorities would send out vans to to pick up street kids and remove them from the area to clean up the area. And uh, they'd beat them. Oh, they'd just drive them up the road a couple of hours and dump them, you know, or an hour, you know. And, and so basically they were beating them up in the process. And I got very angry about this, as did my colleagues. And, 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 and we campaigned for about eight or nine years around this and actually we won the battle because we were able to use international media in the run-up to the 2010 world cup and actually weirdly because i don't read this newspaper but um the the sun newspaper the footballers paper came out and uh, did an expose on the roundups and i took them to follow a roundup operation with the trucks you know with guys with whips chasing children and throwing them in vans and and they did a double page spread in the sun and it was so humiliating for the authorities that they actually ended the the roundups and and um we also did some tv uh news we followed with news cameras and stuff so we ended that practice in in 2010 so if i look back at um you know some of the things that i'm proud of for the organization it's that we played such a big role in stopping the forced removals of street children. And, you know, they would say, well, what do you want? Do you want kids to be on the streets? And we say, no, we don't want them to be on the streets, but we want the, we want the, the way we get them off the streets has to be through um, social development and compassion rather than enforcement. Because whenever you use enforcement for a social issue, it never ends well for the people, um, yeah. for, for those who are struggling. So I guess that that's where you can kind of step in and go, right, you can't you can't pick them up, but you also can't just leave them there. So you need our help and potentially get some funding or at least some 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 kind of help in order to get them off the street in the correct way, rather than chasing them with whips and dumping them two hours up the road. Yeah, that's it. I and mean, we you know we developed like citywide strategies for the municipality at the time and said, hey, this is how we can do it together. Uh, this, they weren't interested, but you know now actually you know t- as time's gone on, uh, we've got a good relationship with the municipality. I mean, I don't have. We don't ever want to fight for the sake of fighting. You know, there's yeah. some really good people in the municipality 
Um, we get on really well with them now. They they love the work that we do. So there's good understanding. It was just a period of time in this 2000 to 2010 mm. um, and some personalities that were involved. And so um, nowadays, yeah, we don't have that. Those types of roundups are not going on of street children. Well, well I mean, just for me, well done. And that's not going to mean anything, but uh, that's like incredible. And it's so nice to be able to see that, you know, after, you know, campaigning for that many years for then for then to happen is you know, it's not like it happens overnight. So it's that must be a really, really decent feeling of success from your part. Oh, that's very encouraging. Thanks. Yeah, it was a long campaign. And, and you know, definitely uh, when I look back at some of the images of it, you know, because we've got so many images of these kids during these roundups and what they used to endure, I do think to myself, wow, that is something that the organization has really, you know, contributed to in the new South Africa. Yeah. And how many how many kids are you are on your program now across Mozambique and SA? We have about 120 uh, in the, the SA program that are coming in in a month. But any given, if you go to the drop-in center, there could be 20, 30, 40 at a time. Um, we've got a drop-in center on the beach that we call the Surf Club. We've got an emergency facility um, for girls called the Surf House. Um, we run our programs there as well. Um, we've also got a, a home f- called the Independent Living Program for youngsters that are in their first jobs and just need a bit of support and, and mentoring around sort of how to be an adult and sort of starting to pay your way. Mm-hmm. And then in Mozambique, we've replicated the the drop-in center, um, which is uh, uh, based in the, the, the beach uh, village of Tofu in Mozambique. And it's a different situation there, uh, kids who are it's a it's a tourism hub, a very small village. So some of the effects have been negative on the children, uh, and it's really a diversion program to get kids back in school and and to give them a bit more to work towards in their lives than just sort of begging to tourists. So uh, it's a pretty exciting it's program. That diversion way. rescue diversion. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So and and they, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, I've got. Uh, Mini Cho from our Mozambican director in the UK at the moment. I'm traveling with him and uh, Sneema Kubu, who's an ambassador for our program in Durban called Girls Surf 2, which, are, which is our specific girls program. And they're, uh, they're both here in the UK at the moment, sort of talking a bit about those programs and, uh, and surfing as well. And um, I understand you guys are going to the very northern tip of Scotland, to Thurzo, is that correct? And who, who's going there? Why are you going yeah. That's a trip we're doing with uh, Stance Socks, and um, it's uh, yeah, we, we're super excited about that. And it's um, Minnie and Snay come from sort of pretty tropical and subtropical regions, so this is about the opposite, you know, that you could possibly imagine. So we're calling it the Cold Water Tour, of course. Um, but yeah, we're really stoked to get that opportunity. And we've been in uh, in North Devon, and we've had a, a really good swell in North Devon a couple of weeks ago. It was just pumping, and, and so you know, as well as meeting with supporters in London and supporters in the Southwest, uh, Cornwall, and and, uh, uh, and and North Devon, we now we've got an opportunity to go up as a team um, to, uh, to 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 Thurso. Where so my I'm, son as I'm well. Is. Going up. So there's Mini, Snay, my son, Siander, he's a junior ambassador for the organization because he grew up with all the kids in the program. I mean, he literally grew up at the, uh, you know, at the program. So, uh, and he's a sort of junior surfer now. So he's uh, a junior ambassador. So the three and myself, so it'll be four of us in total. Amazing. And the, the two crew that you're taking up with you, have the, did, have, were they recruited through from as, as street kids or did they have different lives and come and work? alongside how did they yeah, no not they weren't um at all um snake comes from a 
uh, you know, she's got a family and uh, lives in a, a township in South Africa. But, you know, there's a lot of social problems in, in most areas in South Africa. And, and her father, who's a lifeguard, uh, put her into a program with our coach uh, as a diversion. Um, and there's something really positive to be involved in. So still a compelling story, but definitely not a street story. Um, and then uh, Minnie from Mozambique, um, he um, was... Uh, yeah, I mean, he's also had a tr quite a tricky um, childhood story. And uh, we met him when we went up the coast. Uh, before we had a program in Mozambique, we met him when I took surfers from the program, really good surfers from the program, uh, youngsters who were sort of QS level surfers. And we wow. met with the kids in Mozambique and he was one of the kids. And now he's 22 and, and leading uh, the program. I've, I've, they're around, actually. I'm a, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a shout. Uh, Minnie, you're around. Yeah. Snay, Snay is fast asleep. We'll, we'll talk to Snay in a moment. Um, <laughs> let me introduce you to uh, Minnie, Minnie Cho, uh, Director of Surfers Not Street Children South Africa. Uh, sorry, most of you. How are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Yeah, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, not at all. H how has it been over here? How's the cold? How's the surf? Oh, it's been great. Um, I think Tom mentioned it that, you know, we're from a very tropical background. So it's been nice to experience the opposite and kind of have a play on the on the trip. But we've lucked into some good swell, good weather. So, um, yeah, it's been good. I've been loving it here, actually. Now, with, with tropics, does that actually mean no wetsuit at all or do you still need a wetsuit? Where I live in Mozambique, not at all. I do not own a wetsuit in Mozambique. And the coldest day in winter, I'm still out in board shorts and not even with a wetsuit top. That oh my good. word that sounds great <laughs> so how is it how is it paddling in a 5-4 with a suit and big boots that you can't feel your toes properly <laughs> i haven't experienced a 5-4 i've been wearing a 4-3 it hasn't been too bad been wearing a 4-3 um it was it's it's quite something to get used to but um yeah i thought that the neoprene would affect me but i actually um i did the croyd surf uh contest on the weekend when i arrived and uh, ended up winning the men's division so i was surprised at myself no way! congrats that's so cool <laughs> thank you thank you so i was quite surprised at that because i thought that the wetsuit would affect me and the booties because I was, I was still getting used to wearing booties so yeah it's not too bad actually you smashed <laughs> it and, and you're 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 excited for thurzo yes um uh, i haven't i've heard a lot about it and obviously even in mozambique i've seen obviously on social media or I've seen the wave and there used to be a, a event up there. So it's a right-hander. I, I grew up living, I grew up surfing right-hand point breaks. And I don't know if it's a point break, but it's a nice looking, right? It looks so I'm quite excited. I just, the cold is the issue, but we'll, we'll deal with it. Are you, are you going to, is, is that backhand or forehand for you going right? Forehand, forehand. Oh, okay. So then great. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> right at home. Well, I mean, I've been here 40 years, well, not 40 years, 20 something years, and I still haven't been up there. So um, you beat me to it. And I hope I hope you get all of the conditions, all of the most amazing, because the light up there looks unbelievable. The, the, the light in the UK at this time of year is one of the things that I love the most. It's just outrageous. And it gets better the, the more north you go. Um, so I, I hope it's absolutely stunning for you. I'm sure it will be. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think. Oh man, that's so cool. Well, look, I think we're we're kind of getting to um the, the to kind of wrap up the podcast, but I d I just wanted to say thank you so much for um your time and and to meet you folks and also um Tom just to just to kind of end if if people want to get involved they want to donate they want to help learn more where do we go what do we do how can we do it yeah thanks for that and that would be really valued um couple of ways firstly um. 
we're trying to build an army of small givers, uh, small monthly donors rather. So if you go to our website, surfnotstreets.org, um, and you go to the support or donate, um, you can sign up. And, and basically, it doesn't have to be huge amounts of money. Just uh, but you know, when we when we get those monthly debits going in, that's what we can really uh, that builds our sustainability, which which is huge. And secondly, you know, we don't want to be uh, having to get donations only. We've, we're launching our new merch range, which is really exciting. Um, so within the next week or two, you'll see new merch on our uh, our website, but also um, on our Instagram page. So follow us on Instagram, which is at Surfers Not Street Children. And, um, you know, that's probably the best way to keep up to date on a sort of day-to-day level of what's going on at the program. Will Stance Socks be doing a Surfers Not Street Children collab sock that you can buy with proceeds going over? Weirdly, we've actually had one uh, with uh, um, that was is going back a, a short while. Stance has been fantastic, and we've also got a an O'Neill collab uh, capsule um, being released in uh, February of uh, 2022. So look out for an edit we've just done with Geordie, Geordie Smith and um and o'neill because that's that's going to be a biggie in about february and we'll launch a whole clothing range uh which looks so sick <laughs> amazing well I, i'll definitely keep my eye out on that thank you so so much for your time it's an absolute pleasure you guys are total heroes and keep up the insanely cool work and good luck with everything else and enjoy thurzo uh thanks a lot thanks so much thank you thank you Take care, folks see you later cheers the best yeah. bye